Welcome everybody to the April episode of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I also direct our division of suicide prevention. And with me today is Andrew. Hey everyone, I'm Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery, Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And uh, appreciate you joining us for this episode. Thanks, Andrew. We are really excited about today's episode. We have Sarah Jemison on with us today from Seven Counties to talk about her work. And I'm going to introduce Sarah in just a second. But before we do that, I just wanted to remind our listeners that we will be discussing issues related to suicide and suicide prevention today. And so if at any time during the episode, you feel like you need to take a break, please feel free to do so. Also, just a reminder to take care of yourself after you are finished listening to today's episode, however that feels good to you. Just as a reminder as well, there are support resources available if you are concerned about yourself or a loved one. If you are in the United States listening to us, we have the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which is available by dialing 988. You can also text 988 if you are looking for support. Those services are available 24-7-365, and you don't have to be in a suicide crisis to utilize those services. In addition, if you are looking for a support group, if you have lived experience of suicidal thoughts, suicide attempt, you can search out a local alternatives to suicide support group. If you are in the state of Wisconsin, you can look at mhawisconsin.org slash alt to sue. And with that, we are going to go ahead and get started by introducing today's guest, who I am very excited to speak with. We're talking with Sarah Jemison. Sarah grew up in a military family in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and she works for Seven Counties Services Incorporated as a certified prevention specialist and military family resiliency specialist. She works with local, state, and national agencies and community organizations to develop and coordinate evidence-based strategies to increase resilience within military and veteran families. She provides training and consultation to Kentucky's Prevention Network on capacity building, community engagement, and best practices with working with military families. Sarah also developed and is now coordinating Kentucky's Purple Star Award Program and Yellow Ribbon Resiliency Program. Her innovative work supporting and advocating for military and veteran families has been recognized locally and across the state. So welcome, Sarah, to The S Word. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so glad to be here today. Awesome. Well, something we always ask our guests is the question about what brought you to this work, especially the work of suicide prevention. It's a, you know, as you know, can be difficult work, heavy work. And it seems like everybody that we talk to has a really interesting story about what brought them to this work. So we're curious to hear how you started. I first learned about suicide through personal experience. In 2014, my brother died by suicide and it was an S word we had never heard of before. And it definitely shook myself and my family to its core. And we had, this was 
2014, when no one was speaking about suicide, no one acknowledged it, discussed it, understood it. And so within a month's time frame, I learned what suicide was and the impact that it has on individuals and families. And of course, at that time, I wasn't thinking about how I can help others. I was mostly just trying to keep my own head above water and my children's head above water. And eventually I was led to the work through my position with Seven County Services. I started in which Seven County Services is a community mental health agency. And I took on the role of the office manager for our prevention division. And one of my first tasks within the role was to learn about what prevention is and what my colleagues are doing in the community. So I shadowed a lot of my colleagues and I started learning about QPR, question, persuade, refer, mental health first aid. I started understanding and learning about the risks and the protective factors and the warning signs of suicide. And my mind was blown away immediately in one class, um, learning that those warning signs were everything that we saw in my brother before he died. And immediately I knew that everyone needed to learn about suicide prevention. And I don't want anyone else to ever have to experience the things that my family's experienced. Yeah, Sarah, thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm curious, given your experience personally with suicide loss and now your work with suicide prevention in a professional role, what is one thing you wish everyone knew about suicide or suicide prevention? I think first and foremost, just knowing that you can help save a life. Mm. You don't, I don't have a medical degree. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a clinician. Mm. I am someone who cares and someone who wants to help. And I think that's the most intimidating thing about suicide prevention is sometimes people feel like because they don't have a counseling degree or social work degree that they're somehow less qualified to show care to someone in crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So being empowered to use your ability to connect with others and you're caring about someone to help someone who's in suicidal distress and get them connected with the resources they need. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Sarah. And it's really inspiring to hear how your personal, you know, your lived experience kind of spurred you into action. So thank you. So we are broadcasting this episode in April for a very specific reason um, and wanted you to be our guest because of the special event that's coming up in April. April is the month of the military child and much of the work that you do is with, as I mentioned, military and veteran families. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do as a military family resiliency specialist and how did you kind of get interested in this work? At the time that I started in prevention, 
in Kentucky, there was not a lot of knowledge about military culture, military presence. We have a relatively large military population. However, the people in our prevention network had no idea about military life. And myself being a proud Navy brat and both of my brothers served in the Army and Army National Guard, I was very knowledgeable about military life and military experiences and was able to connect with the community very seamlessly because of my experience being a part of a military family. And Kentucky received a SAMHSA grant called the Partnership for Success grant. And one of the goals of the grant was to start building capacity to serve military connected youth because our statewide school data showed that military connected youth experienced higher rates of serious psychological distress, thoughts of suicide and suicide attempts. So it was very eye-opening for us to learn that back in 2015. And so in other regions throughout the state, they started to try to connect with the military community at Fort Knox and Fort Campbell. However, even though I was located in Louisville, I was able to partner more with the military community because of that connection. And what started within the seven counties region, which is Louisville and six surrounding rural counties, we built up and spread throughout the state the strategies that we were implementing at the local level. And so with my work now, I take everything that I started in Louisville and teach the rest of the state of Kentucky how they can connect with their local military community, how they can enhance the current prevention work that they're doing to include military-connected youth and families. Sarah, that's fantastic. One thing I, I find myself wondering is what you attribute your successes to in that role in, in terms of that rollout and expansion. It sounds to me like networking is a, is a big part of that, but I'm curious what you think has helped you be successful with that expansion. I would definitely say that my director and my colleagues at the state who have encouraged that growth, they they first recognize that there is a need within the state of Kentucky to prioritize this population. And seeing that I was able to connect and network with individuals, you know, I think one of my first contacts was the Veteran Affairs Hospital in Louisville, which we don't always think of as a partner within our prevention work, especially if we're looking at preventing youth suicide, right? because the VA does not serve youth. However, it's a huge federal organization that has a lot of partnerships and they really helped open the door for me to learn about other statewide 
organizations, both state and nonprofit organizations that are working to prevent suicide within military families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think a lot of times in this work, there can be people across different institutions or organizations where there's potential synergy. And so making those connections is really important. And it sounds like you've done that. Yes. Yeah, that's really great. It's it's also really encouraging to hear that your state leadership, you know, recognized the need to focus on this population and, and was willing to prioritize that. So that's that's really great to hear. And you mentioned that, you know, children of veterans aren't necessarily considered or thought about in the context of like VA healthcare and things like that. So I think, you know, I'd like to use a little bit of time here today to talk about some of the specific stressors that military children face and then how you've seen or how you've heard that these stressors can affect suicidal thoughts and behaviors among military children. And like many children, we all have different experiences. So every military child has a different experience. Me growing up, my father did 20 years in the Navy. However, at that time, there weren't a lot of deployments going on. If my father did deploy, it was for six months. So the the world of the military, the U.S. military has really changed since September 11th. And the deployments are longer. There's a lot more things going on within the military. In addition to those other stressors that youth have. And I think that's the one consideration that we have to think of when talking about military youth, because they're already experiencing stress within school, stress with COVID, stress with relationships, with families. And on top of that, they're considering their military life experiences. And those can be things like deployments, whether or not the child is a child of an active duty service member, which means their parent is full-time Monday through Friday, eight to five uniform every day, or they're a National Guard family, which is a one weekend a month, two weeks out of the year, or a reserve family, which is a kind of a part-time for the active duty service members. And so they each have unique experiences depending on how their families serve. They could all experience deployments. And I think a lot of times we think of if there is a war going on and we hear it in the news, then it's a little more known that soldiers may be deploying. What we don't always consider is we have service members deploy in peacetime all over the world, not just in combat zones. We have National Guardmen service members that are deployed for natural disasters. Kentucky recently experienced huge flooding in Eastern Kentucky. National Guard members were deployed to help with the flood relief. During COVID, they were activated and had to help with the hospitals. And so even though they're not in a combat zone, they are separated from their families. 
they are worried about their families because they're not at home. They are missing out on their child's life experiences, whether that's a project they're working on in school, a football game, a ballet, some sort of performance. They're, they're experiencing that loss. Some military youth have to relocate often, whether that's because they're moving in and out of state because of military orders, or maybe they are a family of the National Guard and they are a single family home. And so now the child has to go and stay with other relatives within Kentucky. And so maybe they're in a different neighborhood, so they're not able to play with the same kids outside that they're used to. There's constant change. They can be deployed at any moment. And so if they're always thinking about what's coming next, what to expect, what's going to happen when they return home, mm-hmm. just a lot of experiences of uncertainty, mm-hmm. which a lot of times if the youth don't feel like people will understand that they could isolate themselves because they don't want to share what that feels like because no one will understand them. And so we know that isolation is a huge risk factor for suicide and not having those supports in school, whether that's peers, other supportive adults could really increase the risk for suicide. Yeah. I appreciate you mentioning, you know, National Guard and reserves families. Here in Wisconsin, we don't have a huge military installation like there are in other states like Kentucky, Texas, you know, other states. We do have Fort McCoy, which is relatively small in comparison with some of these other installations. But, you know, we do have families that are National Guard families and reserve families. And so I think it's important to, you know, keep that in mind as we're thinking about the breadth of you know, experiences that military children have and consider that as we're thinking about work like this in schools that can support these military children. So thank you for bringing that forward for sure. I'm just curious if you happen to know if suicide rates among military children are higher in general than youth or children of civilian parents. Is that something that you're aware of? Yes, that is what our statewide data shows, that our military-connected students, and that when we ask the question on our Kentucky Incentives for Prevention survey, it is sent to 6th, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, and they take it biannually in their schools. And when we ask about military connection, It could include a parent, guardian, a sibling, or a grandparent, or other caregiver within the home. And so when we look at that data, there are significant rates between non-military connected youth and military connected youth. And what we did in our data was we asked students, do you have one military connection, such as one parent, one sibling, or do you have two or more, such as maybe a parent and a grandparent or two parents? And what we saw was that 
with the increased number of connections, the risk was elevated as well. So if you have more than one military connection, you're at higher risk for thoughts of suicide and suicide attempts. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea about that. So thanks for informing us. One of the things that's kind of going through my mind is thinking about family systems and how any stressor that is experienced by one family member, like a caregiver, how that has ripple effects and interactive effects. And so I think to me, the model that you're talking about is just really insightful in terms of considering a holistic picture of the impact of military service on the entire family. And I was going to just mention as well, when when thinking about military families, we also want to consider veteran families because yeah. the child may have been born after service or the service member might have done four years and not mm-hmm. and the child not even know about the military connection. And as mentioned, the ripple effect, you know, if you have a veteran who experiences thoughts of suicide or has a physical health condition, oftentimes it's the youth that has to step up and be a caregiver as well, whether that's for mental or physical wounds. Right. They are considered the hidden helpers because we don't always see the impact that that has on those youth as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I was at a conference last year and one of the sessions that I attended was about caretakers and helpers for veterans and how, like you just said, Sarah, the focus tends to be on veteran suicide prevention, military suicide prevention, which is absolutely important and necessary and deserving of attention. And the point of this presentation was you have this other, you know, kind of constellation of people in the life of a veteran that are affected by these different issues that don't always get the focus or attention that veterans and and folks in the military do. So, you know, I think this is another reason why your work is so important is that we need to continue to think about this and bring focus because, you know, we've said it on this program, we've said, you know, in other spaces that suicide doesn't just impact the person, it impacts families and communities and neighborhoods. So I appreciate you mentioning that. And I think one factor to consider is we don't identify the military youth within the community. If you live in a community that has an installation, you see the service members in uniform at the gas station, at the grocery store, everywhere you go. If you live in a community with a National Guard armory, you see those things. But the family members, the youth, they don't wear the uniform. Even if considering veterans, you have A lot of veterans may wear shirts or hats or something that may identify them as service-connected. However, those youth and those family members don't always wear those same identifying 
symbols. And so we oftentimes don't think that they are in our communities, they're in our schools, they're in our churches, they're in our grocery stores, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the stressors that military children and children of veterans face. And I want to shift focus and talk a little bit about strengths and areas of resiliency that you see in your work among military children. I know a lot of the work that you do is in the space of resiliency. And so let's focus on that a little bit. Could you talk about some of those strengths or areas of resiliency that you see among these kids? Yes. And one thing that I always use as an example is that the dandelion is the flower of the military child. And a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate the dandelion, especially during this time of year, because they are trying to replant their gardens. However, when you consider a dandelion, it is very hard to kill a dandelion. You have to really, really work hard. And so that being said, military child is resilient. We are strong. We are everywhere. You know, it's, we all enjoy blowing the dandelion and seeing the pieces fly off. And so we're planted in every community all over the world. And that is a symbol of strength and resiliency. I can speak to both my personal experience as a military child, my daughter being a military child, as well as things that I've read and seen. We, we, we truly value service to others. In every work that I've done since this role, I work with a lot of military connected individuals. And no matter what's asked of them, they elect to serve and do whatever it it takes to, whether we're putting on an event, whether we're doing a meeting, whether we need to collect something, they're always willing to serve and help other people or help the mission be completed. So they take on leadership roles, whether that's in the classroom or in work, they very easily transition into those leadership roles. They're very adaptable to new situations. I had the experience of living in another country when I was growing up. And so when I transitioned and moved back to the United States, I had to meet new friends. I had to adjust my dialect because I lived in England for three years. So I had an English accent. But also with that experience, I learned diversity. I have a, an idea of world outside of the United States. And even if they haven't experienced living out of state, maybe their family member deployed to Japan and came back with souvenirs from Japan. And they are now have a taste of what it's like to live in diverse communities. So there are a lot of opportunities for youth to take their experiences and share with others, encourage others, and be the leaders in their classrooms Mm -hmm. or within their 
faith-based organizations, even inviting them to be a part of community advisory boards, mm -hmm. being able to share their experiences as a military family member. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate the identification of these strengths and the unique perspectives that these youth have. And so really celebrating that and taking that strength-based approach and not focusing only on risk factors is, is a part of the work you're describing that I really uh, appreciate. Sarah, one of the things that we were also wondering is what things that friends or neighbors who are civilians can do to support military families? I think the most important thing first is to understand the military culture and kind of become familiar with it. Not that they have to take a training or anything like that, just understanding there's a difference between active duty guard and reserves. There's a difference between the various service branches and they're all equally important. And if led, you can ask people to share about their experiences and they can share if they choose to share. Also educate yourself on those community resources, mm -hmm. whether that's your local veteran service organization or other organizations that provide any type of resource to military families. Recognize military families in your community and acknowledge their service appropriately. I like to always try to share that Memorial Day is oftentimes celebrated in the United States with barbecues and fireworks and the pools open and the beaches open. And we oftentimes think that that's a good time to thank a service member for their service. However, that is a day to recognize those that have lost their lives to service. So it's a part of that military culture that is good to understand that that is not an appropriate time to thank someone for their service because they're using that day to remember and honor those that are no longer here and paid the ultimate sacrifice. So just those unique nuances that we don't always consider. Mm -hmm. You could highlight local heroes in a newsletter or any kind of community posting boards that you may have, or even within the school, if we're thinking about military connected youth, they could do morning announcements. They could share things in the classroom when you're teaching about a history lesson, using them within the classroom and just really inviting them to be a part of the community that is really just giving them a space to share about their service. If you know that a service member or family member is in transition, then there are things that you can help with. And with transition, I mean, either they are getting ready to deploy, they are returning from deployment, they are leaving the military, they are transitioning to another state, there are things that you can do to support those family members. You can 
send care packages to service members who are deployed. You can write letters and that's something that you could do with, it, with your schools, with your faith-based organizations, with employers, because employers have guardsmen that are activated and deployed. And so you could send those care packages out. You can be accommodating to the family members or the service members, especially when thinking of students and workload assignments, even employers' workload assignments attendance, just understand that they are going through transition and things may be challenging for them. Be a listening ear. Just offering to sit down and have a coffee or, you know, come take them out to lunch or offer to watch the children so that either the, maybe they're, they're just returning home from deployment. And so you want to let Parents have alone time, and so you watch the children for them. There are all of those small things that we can do to support military families year-round. They, military youth especially, see and notice when their family member's service is recognized. They enjoy seeing those displays of gratitude because they know that their service member is gone or their family member is gone or had these experiences that impacted their lives. And so you are now appreciating the sacrifice, not only that the service member has made or, or the military family member has made, but you understand my sacrifice as a child as well. I think recognizing the warning signs of stress you know, having those suicide prevention training classes and understanding. I know I mentioned question, persuade, refer through QPR, but the VA has their specific safe training that they offer. So just recognizing that if behaviors are changing or things are changing and being there to, to provide that support and hope in those times of distress. Mm -hmm. And, and I think lastly, don't, don't treat them any different. Although you recognize their service, sometimes it can be seen as pity or insincere. And mm -hmm. so at the end of the day, we all just want to have a place where we belong. And so just treat military families like every other family that you would come across. Yeah. Yeah, as you were talking through this, Sarah, belonging is the word that kept popping into my head, feeling like you're part of a community, feeling like you're heard and understood, you know, feeling that connection was so important and is protective against issues related to mental health and suicide. And so just continuing to offer opportunities for that belonging and create spaces where military children in particular, but military families as a whole feel that sense of belonging in their community. It's so important. And I also, I was going to ask you about schools and, you know, what teachers and school professionals can do to support military children. So I appreciate the fact that you mentioned the idea of helping to kind of ease the, the workload sometimes when there are these transitions that are happening. Our kids have a lot to do. <laughs> and, you know, I think if you're in a situation where you've got a parent deploying or coming home, 
anything that schools can do to kind of make that transition a little bit easier and less burdensome, I think would be super helpful. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And I will say we just finished a military youth art contest. It was a statewide art contest that we did. And our theme was, how can your school support you? And so the youth created artwork displaying how they wanted their schools to support them. And a lot of them just said, recognizing our family members in the classroom, having a place posted in the classroom where they could put their family members on there. Some youth talked about having books in the library about military service members. They talked about support groups and having someone to talk to and a lot of those kind of things that we wouldn't necessarily incorporate into our education planning, but the military connected youth really see that and they really feel that. And, and even as you mentioned, our, our, our young people have a hard time, you know, parents already working full-time caretaking with children. If their service member is deployed and, or the service member is at home with a mental or physical illness, that is also increased burden on the family. And so just allowing that flexibility, allowing grace for people and understanding that this life is difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see that project that you all did. Is that available online or is that something that folks can look at? It is currently on our Facebook page. We posted our winners on our Facebook page and we are working on uploading the artwork to our website. Very cool. Where would folks be able to find that Facebook page? It is KY Purple Star Award. Awesome. We will make sure to link that to in our caption for the episode. So thanks. I'm going to go take a look at that when we're done because I'm interested to see it. We're getting close to the top of the hour, and this has been such a great discussion, Sarah, on a very important topic and timely. As we said, April's the month of the military child. I loved the dandelion analogy. Um, you all might have dandelions in Kentucky. We don't We don't quite have them here yet. They're coming. They're Not coming. in the tundra currently. Yeah. I'm looking at the snow outside and oh, no. wishing for dandelions. They'll be coming. Yeah. But I just I- love that analogy so much. Yeah. And I just want to express my gratitude, Sarah, as well. I I think there are a lot of things I learned from you today as I have a, my sister was active duty in the army and deployed. And I think that impacted our family in ways that we're still processing, honestly. And so some of the issues that you raised and phenomena that you described have been really helpful for me. And I think will also be top of mind when I'm working with patients who have military involved or or veteran family members. So thank you for that. Well, and thank you for sharing that, Andrew, because as siblings, we are often the forgotten family Mm -hmm. members, especially when considering grief and loss. Yeah. We have very unique experiences as the sibling Mm -hmm. and So that's a whole nother episode, of course, but Mm -hmm. I just appreciate you saying that, especially even when we're thinking of our military youth, 
we don't always consider those older siblings and how that impacts the younger siblings at school. You know, we just think we immediately think of spouse, child, parent, and siblings are not often considered. And so however we go through and experience all of these things, very different levels. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything else, Sarah, that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up that you didn't have a chance to share today? I would just encourage everyone to start looking at your community and seeing where your military and veteran families are and learn about military culture, learn about what it's like. We, you know, I called myself a military brat, which is the term that's been many, many, many years, but we're proud to be called a Brett. It's it's not a negative connotation to it. And and I I enjoy speaking about my experiences. And so I encourage those that are not military connected to seek those that are. And for my fellow Bretts and fellow military family members, I encourage you to share your experiences. We have had some amazing experiences because of our families or our own military service. And it's things that other people may not ever have an opportunity to experience. And I think that people would love to hear from us. Um, Mm -hmm. And as April is month of the military child, Purple is the color of the military child because of red, white, and blue mixed together is purple. So (laughs) proudly wear your purple for the month of the military child all month long. Encourage your schools to wear purple, encourage your communities, and really just shower those military-connected youth with love and celebrate them for all that they have done as a military family. One other thing I'm going to throw out there is that I think that a lot of times when there's a like publicized transition, like, you know, dad is deploying or something like that, that there can be maybe an immediate outpouring of support, but I encourage folks to consider how to sustain that. So like, three months in when the family is still in the midst of it, I think that people tend to be reaching out less often and it it can feel kind of forgotten. So just knowing that the support and things we're talking about, it's important that they're sustained and not just around like a specific big transition that people are aware of. Absolutely. And that also implies to when there's a loss, you know, when there's a death in the family. Absolutely. Because those military families, when they experience the loss, they're oftentimes removed from the military community, whether they were in military housing or living around the military base or installation. And now they are moving back home or moving into a new community. And so they are very isolated. And, you know, oftentimes you'll receive that support. You'll receive those meals that people bring to your home. But after a few weeks, 
things start to go back to normal for the rest of the world. Yeah. But that family, like you mentioned, is is still in transition. They're still working through things. And we have to offer that consistent support and consistent hope for those family members. So thank you for that reminder. And with that, we are at the top of the hour. And I just want to once again express my gratitude for Sarah Jemison for coming on the podcast today for our Month of the Military Child episode for April. So thank you again, Sarah, for being here and for all the work that you do in Kentucky. It's an inspiration to folks in other states as well. So thanks so much for your work and for being here today. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Well, thank you both for allowing me to be here and share my most passionate part of my life, what I live and breathe. So thank you both. You're welcome. Just want to remind our listeners that there are resources available if you are ever concerned about yourself or a loved one. Remember, you can dial or text 988 at any time to receive help with a crisis. You can also find local support groups available if you are in Wisconsin. Take a look at preventsuicidewi.org for a list of our local support groups and resources. Thanks again for listening this month, and we are excited for our next episode, which will be coming up in May, which is Mental Health Month, and we look forward to joining you then.